0: Thank you for tuning in. We had a great discussion today with Doug Reed. He's a management consultant, former AE principal and author, and our discussion today focused on strategic planning and strategy execution. We also hit on a variety of subjects, including the benefits of mentoring and career development, the befores and the afters of a strategic plan, and some new threats facing our industry. So without any further delay, let's do it.
1: The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. This is a show where you and I get to talk with industry insiders and subject matter experts on the issues that matter most. So let's go. Today we have Doug Reed, president of Foster Growth, and we'll be talking about strategic planning and strategy execution. Welcome to the podcast, Doug.
2: Well, thank you, Peter, for for inviting me. I'm, uh, this is very exciting and uh, interested in talking about a subject that's near and dear I know to both of our hearts.
0: Yes. So we like to start big picture here and um, getting to know you a little bit. So. Can you tell us briefly about your background and how you got into management consulting and why you're so passionate about strategy and execution? Hmm. Okay, I'll try to be concise.
2: I'm a civil engineer, as you are too, uh, both a uh, bachelor's and master's, and started off the typical uh, engineer wanting to help solve all of my clients' infrastructure problems. I had no interest in management, no interest in uh, corporate anything, I just wanted to be an expert at uh, at my trade, which very quickly became environmental and drinking water and wastewater and those kinds of things. Uh, along the way, uh, I I found myself with some great mentors, uh, predominantly the CEOs of the firms where I worked. Uh, they were always people that uh, really had the attitude of empowering staff, and they also had the attitude of not trying to do it alone. And so they brought in external uh, persons either for training or are learning and so that that allowed me to get very early into both project management but also start to work on sales and then understand how a company was managed Uh, along the way um, in that environment i had uh, opportunity to work with the ceo's external consultant as i progressed to shareholder level and was a member of a board of directors a finance committee and also the committee responsible for implementing the strategic plan uh, called the growth committee. Uh, I worked uh, one-on-one quite often with an external director. It was a broad businessman. I had uh, uh, exposure to clients from outside our industry as well. Uh, I, I grew more and more enamored with the, the, the power uh, of applying business science to advance business, not just for me, uh, but for all of the employees it really opened up the doors. Uh, I was able to control the kind of projects and clients uh, that I provided services to by engaging that way. And so that sort of high growth environment was exciting. And I liked uh, the one individual's lifestyle as well. And so I, uh, way probably in my 30s, was thought, you know, someday uh, maybe I'd like to really uh, become more and more involved with business and maybe be a, a, a consultant. Uh, really, uh, what, what, what really excites me is seeing people who are largely technical people, engineers, architects, scientists, realize that they really could uh, uh, learn and apply business uh, skills, business science skills to help control and, and their own outcomes, their own career, and achieve things that they didn't think was even possible before. And when I saw the enthusiasm and satisfaction amongst staff from coaching them in that way, I said, this is really exciting. Uh, I can uh, can transition from being that technical engineer delivering project to that business consultant. Uh, And a lot of it is because of mentoring and coaching I had from those external people who taught me really that uh, there is a right way to do things.
0: And when you look back, Do you see that it was an evolution that, you know, for many years you really were just enamored with the technical side and as you evolved as a person, you liked that the, sort of the, the business and the management aspects or do you think you always had a little piece of that in you and some of these external consultants sort of brought that out or did you, once you got to the point where I really like this stuff um, and I think maybe I can make a career out of it and help grow some firms, that those early connections you were able to connect the dots with?
2: Sure. I started at a pretty early age but initially I had absolutely no interest in management. Probably in my mid 20s I was becoming a drinking water expert on developing water supply and water treatment instrumentation control systems for instance um and that was uh, very exciting to me and I was learning a lot. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I did uh, because of some outside sales experts that were brought into the company the CEO involved even the 20 something year olds in the firm in that process and I then learned and they allowed me to go out and develop relationships with clients and to essentially begin to develop revenue. I was probably 28 or 29 when we were shortlisted and the principal took me to the interview and the client really liked the presentation part that I gave uh, and and hired us. So I was one for one on my first proposal and so I said, this is pretty neat, Maybe maybe I like this. So from there, I moved into project management uh, and working in teams. I also discovered I was very interested in working with teams. I actually, again, had an employer who supported me through all kinds of external training, for instance, supervision training, a project management training, negotiation skills, all these things that I didn't have to just learn it on the job, I learned it from people who knew how to do it, how to apply it. And I really credit that a lot for from, from my capabilities, but my interest moving more and more the business uh, into the business side of things so it as- was an evolution by the time I was uh, in my 40s I was an elected shareholder and uh, in a firm that was growing quite rapidly we had ten consecutive years of 25 percent growth uh, mostly organic and um, so I did that not just at one firm for two different firms as well so uh, pretty exciting so it was an evolution until I look back at working with that uh, one uh, external consultant who was like the private consultant to the CEO and everything I learned from him. And I said, someday that's going to, that's what I'm going to do.
0: It's uh, kind of interesting. You brought up because I mean, working with a lot of organizations and talking with a lot of, you know, newer um, or even seasoned leaders for that matter, there is a strong desire, particularly in the AEC industry for people to receive some training. I mean, it, it is the, it's a big, you know, employee retention and, um, And and training, or some of the big issues that are facing firms, and they're starting to develop programs. But it's interesting, you know, several decades ago, that there was a firm that saw the benefit of bringing in, you know, expert trainers, and not just forcing on the job. Because I think in our busyness, there's a lot of, hey. You know, after 10 years, 20 years, you'll figure this stuff out. We'll learn it. We might do a day's worth of training on project manager scope, schedule, budget, you know, some people skills, some presentation skills. But a lot of time, it's going to be pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we'll figure this thing out. Uh, It's just interesting that. A lot of folks today, the new generation and even, you know, I'll say, you know, 20, 25 year folks who are looking at leadership now want to just shortcut. They want to s- reduce the, the learning curve and they want some outside expertise brought in to facilitate their in-house training. And we've talked about this before um, in the engineering architecture space. I mean. We're smart people. We can figure this out. There is a do-do it yourself mentality, and be, we probably could do it ourselves. But I think what you're speaking to in your career, um, before it was vogue, um, more you know, like it is now, to bring in outside training and expertise. Um, you're the beneficiary of of planning, basically professional and career development, putting seeds ahead of time, and shortening that learning curve. So I think it's, it's almost like a model done decades ago of what people are really starving for today. Um, and some of that is at strategic career planning. And, you know, what we're talking about today is strategic business planning and business growth that comes out of this. And um, again, I mean, the benefit of, you know, some firms bring in outside experts to facilitate and even help implement and other firms do it themselves. And I, I guess I don't want to judge. It's just a matter of how do you lessen right. the, the, the um Uh, the learning curve and how do you speed up results? Uh,
2: Absolutely. And, and it wasn't, um, wasn't uh, all uh, external support. I certainly saw the results of the do it yourself approach. Uh, I, uh, many different times, whether it be somebody who was thought to be good at sales or someone who was thought to be good at project management, or even one case, somebody who was thought, to be good at strategy because they had a marketing background, so maybe they should do the strategic plan. So I was participative in those, and and in each of the cases, I saw a couple of things. Um, mainly that there was not an intended outcome; it, it just never went anywhere. I also witnessed the individuals who are uh, recruited within the firm to provide that training and that coaching, and uh, in all their cases, it wasn't their core job responsibilities. It was taking them away from their core job responsibilities, which might be marketing, could be office management, could be uh, sales. And they, they weren't really that good at it. And they also didn't like it. So usually that training would happen once and never again. So uh, ultimately, uh, I saw and witnessed and was a participant in many failed programs. Uh, yet when I was participating in the program with an external person, had the CEO uh, backing the process fully, I saw uh, all kinds of success. So it was black and white. It was totally different.
0: Uh, there is that type of external accountability that happens. Um, and there is the, you know, that you're really good at this, um, but it's not. You know something that you're really passionate about and want to put that sort of discretionary effort in for internal training, and it's absolutely you know learning by doing, and it's like that reciprocal learning. You know the teacher learns twice, so we want all of our principals and our project managers to do some type of you know internal training, and that absolutely works on a lot of levels. But if it's really not in the cards from a passion perspective, it might not get done, or it might get done once, um, and then it just it, there's just something left on the table. So, I mean, I think it, it's it a very, it's very an interesting discussion because I think we're getting to that in a lot of organizations. Like, how are we growing and developing our internal folks? And probably it is a good mixture of internal and external expertise um, and not a one-day event. It's probably, you know, a multi-month You know, peer-to-peer collaborative learning exercise where um, there's as much workshop and cross-division, cross-office collaboration as possible uh, to build the relationships. So it is kind of, you know, um, it's an interesting scenario. So, but in general, I mean, we're we're talking a little bit about career development and planning for staff, but from an organizational perspective, to sort of get on back on the um, or on the um, strategic planning as a firm. So. The economy, if we look at a business perspective, the economy is rocking right now. Why is strategic planning important for firms?
2: Strategic planning, I think, is always important, whether we're rocking or whether we're in the middle of a recession. Uh, It's important to keep an eye on the world and how it's changing, because it is changing, and uh, it's changing, and your clients are changing. And if you've just got your head down working on projects, uh, and one project after another working on hiring and recruiting and doing all those internal things to manage a business, that's great. But if you're not paying attention to what's going on around you, you can be surprised. And many firms have been and suffered the consequences of that.
0: All right. And how often, I mean, from a business from a, if I'm on the board of directors and senior executive team, I mean, how often should we doing be doing strategic planning? Is it every three years, every five years, every seven years? Um, mm-hmm. is, should there be a routine or it should be, you know, when we feel as though we need to, you know, maybe pivot in a new direction or adjust our direction?
2: Yeah. Well, I think that discipline is important. Uh, as I mentioned, with everything in a constant state of flux, clients' expectations, their own business drivers, uh, and, and our means and methods, especially with technology accelerating uh, and changing the tools we use, it's very important to be regular in uh, the strategic planning process. The general rule of thumb is to, to conduct a full blown strategic planning process at least once every five years. Uh, I th- even think that uh, what might be better is every three years, uh, you set a five year time frame for, for your strategic plan. So you create a a plan that advances and looks forward five years out. But you know that in about three years, you're going to at least update that, if not completely do it over again. Uh, And also, I think it's important to talk about what we mean by strategic planning, because the word is used so many times. If one were to go on Amazon and the books and and put in the word strategic planning, you will get over 50,000 books. There's a ton of material out there with opinions about strategic planning, what it is, and how to do it. Uh, But often, for instance, a strategic plan is really a marketing plan. That's probably the most common thing I see uh, is someone referring to a strategic plan. When I ask about what the scope is and who is leading that strategic plan, it's really a marketing plan. Marketing that, and sales. It's not looking a, at the whole business.
0: That's so, a great point because a lot of the frustration that I hear from um, principals and firms or people who have participated in strategic planning. And I've participated in strategic planning myself and been a facilitator and you know, not necessarily from the direct leadership teams, um, but some of the sort of the next level folks, or even some of the folks that are on the board, but not necessarily dominant personalities is that the strategic planning really is an external focus. It's external markets, product, service value, whether we're going to expand geographically, add new, you know, value added services to the organization. And it's a little bit of a gloss over with some of the internal cultural issues and the staff development, um, items that are there and and, you know and and maybe it's an evolving subject, um, or it's we're just the leaders in place are uncomfortable with some of the people issues of people in the culture and it's 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 less it seems less tangible, but yet it's a direct you know benefit to the bottom line to have fully engaged and growing talent that sticks around. So have you seen like a, a modification or a morphing in what strategic planning is? Is it, is it shifting from external focus to internal focus or the right balance?
2: I don't know that there's a shift, but I do see uh, in the um, eyes of uh, usually the CEO who's the one setting the direction, or the, uh, who's making it clear the purpose about why he or she uh, believes it's important to begin a strategic planning process. It's like uh, what, what's important to them and how familiar they are with the process. In our industry, we know that a lot of people at very senior levels are technical people. They're engineers, scientists, architects. Uh, They're not business people. Occasionally, they've got some business courses under their belt, maybe an MBA, but it's often a very technically driven person. What I see then is often is a lack of understanding or appreciation for the complexity of of managing a business. And that's where we start getting into trouble. As you said earlier, you know, we're all smart people. You, you couldn't get that degree unless you were pretty smart. Uh, I also have a story I tell about the end of freshman year, which most engineers can relate to, where the size of the freshman class of engineering students uh, was, was half the size sophomore year. There's a huge uh, number of people that change, change uh, their major. Uh, and what was most common is, is those people would go, go and shift to becoming a business major. So I remember in college thinking, oh, those business majors are the people that couldn't hack engineering. And uh, yet I actually learned years later that those people that went into business and were good at it actually were extremely successful people. And, and I also, through the conversation we've had so far, illustrated how I saw how running a business is very difficult. It really is hard, and it's just because you're trained a trained problem solver doesn't mean you're going to be good at figuring out on your own how to manage your business, how you grow your business. So it really comes to who's driving the need for strategic plan and what their perspectives are. And also their their willingness to move outside their comfort zone. That's another big one too, because their comfort zone might be their technical expertise and not business. So that may may cause it. It may be that they're mostly concerned about succession planning because their retirement is not too far away. So that becomes the main driver between the strategic planning process. It could be that they they want to expand the marketing and so it becomes a marketing plan. But what happens is they really, the very first step in the whole process is to understand uh, why why they're in business, uh, who they are, who they wanna be and why. And the why part is what gets glossed, glossed over in strategic planning. And when, we, when I talk to somebody who's been through a strategic planning process in which I was not involved and if they're complaining about it, it's because they were asked to participate in this um, and make a substantial investment of their time in a process that was too narrow and didn't actually uh, broach or examine or create a plan for some of the things that they felt were more important, which as you said, is more the internal things the people side, the process things, the quality side, the uh, the succession planning, the, all those kinds of things. It was just, yeah, we have a great marketing plan. Uh, and so it's, um, I think it's very important for very, at the very beginning um, to, to sit down with a CEO and say, okay, what is it you want to accomplish and why? And then let's test that notion to see whether it shouldn't just be, shouldn't be a full comprehensive 2 planning process. And that's when we are talking about how often to do it. You know, that's a that's a three to five years uh, on those. If it's simply a marketing plan, it could be a couple years for that. Much shorter because it's a much more focused plan. and um, will involve fewer people. But if you really want to keep an eye on your business, ensure that it's a sustainable business, a healthy business that provides career opportunity and financial reward for owners, uh, it really needs to be
0: comprehensive. So, who should be at the table? Not, not. I mean, I guys, at first, who should be at the table with laying out the scope of strategic of the strategic plan, and then maybe who should be at the table for going through the strategic planning process? Yeah,
2: that's a great question, Peter, and one that I'm very passionate about. Probably partly because of, as I mentioned, in my late 20s, when I did have a business minded CEO who did involve even the younger generation and and how that younger generation can and does um, have a major impact on on the growth and um, quality of of the business. So uh, what we see a lot is Cedric planning sessions that are made up of all the senior leaders in the company Uh, and and leading out all those mid-level and junior level people. So the way I characterize it with my clients is to talk about, who are the influencers within the company and to develop uh, uh, and to invite uh, and to ask people to participate who are themselves influencers in the company. And that's a different way of looking at it. And one's title doesn't mean that you're an influencer. Right. And uh, I actually had a client once who purposefully did not invite one of his division managers, because through that discussion, we concluded that he concluded that person was not an influencer. So um, it's very important. We also had some 20 something year olds uh, and um, and those people later on in the strategy execution stage were the ones leading the charge, putting the en- energy into it and, and had a passion behind it. So the influencer is the one who's, uh, who others respect. So they're what they say and what they feel about things. Others are, are more willing to believe it and to adapt it and to embrace it. And we all know of the person who is the opposite. The opposite of the person who says something and, and everyone just rolls their eyes and says, oh yeah, another you know another crazier idea, or maybe they're just trying to impress the boss or something like that. Those are the people that actually hurt your cause. So, so what you exactly wanna do right. is to think about engaging a, a group of people who are going to embrace and who you need to embrace. There's not just strategic planning, but the execution part. So when you think about the planning part, it's all about positioning yourself for the execution.
0: All right. And that takes a high degree of, I, I want to say, not just sort of the emotional intelligence, EQ, but extend that to the organization. That takes a whole lot of organizational awareness of the key leaders, whether that be the CEO or the COO, whoever is leading that charge. They really have to be in an environment where they're observing without any sort of um, you know, rose colored glasses or yeah. negative pessimistic glasses, but really observing that organization and they get direct feedback on who are the influences who's, who are making things happen. Um, and then, you know, who might be a cynic, um, that type of thing. Cause it is, you know, one of the aspects, um, People want to talk about when setting up a strategic plan, and I think you nailed it with the influencers to the extent that they 're able to be identified and that they 're the high performers i mean a, a negative influencer you, you you might want to involve them in somehow, but you want definitely you don 't want the cynics um you want people who are for the organization, and if someone 's really a cynic for the organization there 's probably a whole nother discussion that needs to happen, and you might not want to bring them in um, but th- it's a you know that 's being sort of real and having that organizational awareness too um And so it gets into, you know, that helps script who's going to be there. But when you get into the strategic planning, you know, there's always, you know, how do you set the table for the type A's don't take over? Um, Some of the more stealthy cynics don't take over. um, Or that there might be some dominant leaders who really shut down discussion and don't want to be challenged. I mean, how do you sort of neutralize some of the people aspects that – stop some of the real creative discussions. And even if we don't end up being super creative, we have those discussions to figure out which trajectory we want to go. And I mean, you reach for the stars and you land on the moon. Like, you know, there's there's benefits to really open, you know, blue sky thinking. How do you let that happen without sort of our natural tendencies, particularly with senior folks to maybe not want to be challenged or not be open to honest feedback, particularly as it relates to, you know, personal sides, you know, because maybe they can't separate the organization and their position from who they are as a person. And so maybe there's some personal offense uh, made with a suggestion that maybe we're not going in the right direction over here, or we could be improving on right. this direction. All
2: right. The, uh, it's, it's a bit of art uh, and uh, knowledge of facilitating techniques. It's one, one of the great challenges with a do it yourself or a choice uh, uh, approach. The individuals facilitating those rarely uh, understand people's learning styles. Uh, don't understand, for instance, how to uh, how to attain and maintain people's interest, and how to control the uh, those who want to dominate and talk, uh, and also who don't know how to take seniority out of the equation. As we all know, that with a mix of people around the tables, particularly if they're all influencers from you know, an entry-level engineer. In one case, I also had that person was the print room manager, okay? <laughs> this is somebody taking it to real heart. I didn't want an influencer in there who who everybody respects, and so we brought in the print room manager. So you get this whole, but but she's probably, she was probably considered herself the most junior person in the room. So it's very intimidating to be with the CEO, the COO, the marketing director, and others in a meeting and it, it definitely stifles conversation. So one has to know how to take that out of, out of the equation so that's not influencing the outcome. Uh, you also made a comment that uh, maybe um, the person, in the case the CEO, may not be comfortable with hearing uh, views that differ from his or her own. And that's an also important part of advanced planning for, for a strategy session is to make sure the CEO understands that uh, dissenting views or um, competition or or, uh, pushback is is necessary and healthy. Because if we keep in mind that the, the, the single thing that's most important about the planning is the ability to turn it into reality. And if you have people doing something and saying things and align themselves to what they perceive the senior staff uh, particularly CEO, are looking for, then you'll have a strategic plan that doesn't have sincere buy-in. So with that sincere buy-in, it won't go anywhere. It, it'll, it'll die and people will go back to doing other things because they don't have ownership. So well, it's very important to be able to use techniques that uh, take things uh, that, that prevent people from dominate. I mean, an example that we probably all participated in somewhere is to do some things through anonymous uh, input. Uh, to do small group discussions, to switch up participants in those groups, uh, to make sure as a facilitator that uh, sometimes you put all the senior people on one table and you'd be amazed at what the other tables talk about. And you can bring that to the CEO's attention. Look what they just talked about because you weren't at the table. So I've even had at some point the CEO saying to me, oh, maybe I shouldn't even participate in the strategic plan because i'm going to influence the outcome so you know when i say no we have some methods to simply make sure that that we we have outcomes that are that that people really feel passionate about and uh, you are uh, uh, passionate about the firm as ceo so it is important that you contribute but not control or limit
0: Right. And people want to be heard and they want the leadership to hear them out. I mean, whether their ideas are are taken or not. I mean, I like the way you know, you frame that up with an influencer being somebody from the print room. And I, I'm all for, you know, whether it be a peer to peer or um, even expanded beyond like a like a, a group setting where there's strategic planning going on or some sort of a mastermind discussion where, you know, there's veteran folks. And then there's brand new folks because I am of the opinion and have directly observed there's no bad questions. Um, there might be less informed questions, but sometimes that's where the gold is. It's because someone's not tied to the present action and not tied to the decision that was made 15 years ago because of a one-off that put us in one direction. That really, if we tried it a second or a third time, we would have been probably doing something a little different. And so it's that fresh perspective that can come from a little bit of you know being naive, whether it be young in years um, or experience, or coming from a different part of the the organization where they kind of see how things work in a different way. So I think the the great perspectives are important and. You know, not what you said too about. Um, I guess it's framed up as setting the stage, whether it be some small groups or some surveys, to be able to get feedback ahead of time before some of the the main strategic planning. I think that helps set um, the preconditions and almost establish a culture of openness. Um, where people can be heard, because I, if that's shut down early on, I think it does come down to kind of going through the motions, and it doesn't matter. They're really not that interested, because we don't have the opportunity to say what needs to be said without fear of repercussion or without, you know, the safety, and so I think a, a CEO or a leadership team Create the safety. Want this thing to be open and democratic, knowing that the decision's not democratic. I mean, decisions made by the the owners and the leaders. But the more informed decisions and more information that can be made, the more people feel included. Even if their 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 ideas not being kept um, moving forward, they were heard and they got the sense that people really understood that and then got the feedback. So I I think those those conditions or um, are essential. And I like the way you, it's the art. It's the art of facilitating a strategic plan. So let's say the strategic plan is is formed. How does the execution look? Um, and how might that form change over time? And do you need to bring more people into the fall? Obviously, you don't always involve the whole organization. Um, how do you start getting everyone um, to buy in and to want to follow this plan? Um, and then to execute it, and how might that morph over time? Sure. It does morph over
2: time. Well, as we were talking about, most of the effort in ensuring that the strategic plan will succeed, whether it be a single-subject plan like marketing or succession or whether it be a comprehensive plan, um, there's a lot of work that goes on and a lot of attitude adjustment and a lot of planning and commitment made before that strategy development starts. That's why my book, uh, Lead a Movement, uh, m- almost all of the chapters, I think 10 out of 12 chapters are what you do before you do the strategic plan. So you're setting yourself up. It's like uh, a baseball team. You you don't just start the season doing it. You spend an enormous amount of effort with your staff, again, uh, putting everything together and positioning yourself and strategy uh, from internal things uh, to marketing to to advancing the players, getting the players ready through training, and then you start executing the season. So if done right, execution will be far easier if all the advanced work has been done. So when you start the uh, – but what what one of the single most important things about that whole process is the CEO knowing that he or she uh, has to be clearly and visibly in support of executing the strategic plan. So the participants in the strategic planning process are there because they've given the CEO their promise, their commitment to be part of the execution. And if the strategic plan was done in such a way to, uh, to uh, secure buy-in from as many employees as possible, now you have a lot of excitement going when execution first starts. So it's often most effective that the CEO can play a leadership role in the executing the, the strategies. Uh, sometimes in supporting the execution, the CEO is involved with some of the uh, some of the the teams advancing them. Sometimes they're only involved quarterly, and they let the teams uh, uh, advance on their own uh, with support from persons like myself and probably you too. And uh, so, and other specialty training, for instance, like sales training, uh, might be happening from external people. But the CEO is to always uh, make it known that advancing that plan is the number one priority of the firm. There is actually no other priority. And when I managed divisions of the company, when I had my management meetings, all my uh, employees who attended those meetings uh, knew what was expected, that they were expected that this meeting was more important than absolutely everything. There was no proposal, there's no project delivery, there's no client who wanted to meet with you, that would justify uh, you not participating in this meeting. Say, if we're not, not focused on managing our business, then what do we, why are we even here? So what they learned, they actually became very good at saying the clients uh, who wanted to meet at the same time of one of our meetings, they just got to be very good at the client at saying, I'm sorry, I'm not available then. And that was, that's intimidating to a lot of people, but once they get used to it, it actually is, is a simple process.
0: Well, but that sort
2: it. of maintaining momentum is a lot of this communication and, and support and uh, holding them accountable for frequent meetings, uh, at least quarterly check-ins with clear metrics that are shared across all the different groups that are working on executing the strategy. And, and I also like the idea of an annual kind of town meeting where you actually have a communication to every employee. Uh, video conference to, uh, is, is sort of the way that people are accustomed to now. So it doesn't matter the size of the company or the geographic distribution. You can include all the employees in periodic meetings to let them know that this is important, this is what's accomplished, being accomplished, and why you're doing it, which generally it needs to be connected. The why needs to be connected to uh, some ideal that each employee will relate to.
0: Right. And it and it forces leaders to not just, you know, be, be beholden to the urgent, but, um, you know, client services and proposals and, you know, all those are absolutely, you know, essential tasks, but it comes a day, you know, times where the importance of strategic planning and and, uh, the long-term and the mid-term planning have to take priority over the urgent. So it is that leadership awareness and the value of the firm that I think has to take precedence with the strategic planning. Do you see that, um, as far as the interest and the execution um, and the design of strategic planning, does that change? It, does it have any generational influence Do the boomers and the Xers and the millennials approach it any differently? Or if you have more of one type or the other, is that play at all? Or is this, this is business and strategy and, and everyone sort of, act, you know, will see the value? Or do you see any differences across genders? Or generations.
2: Uh, yeah, I I don't see a lot of difference. There's a lot of talk about the difference between generations. However, um in my experience, um uh, I've been able to engage millennials and Gen Xers uh and baby boomers uh all at the same time. The uh the the, the, the old the, the the baby boomers can be uh, made more comfortable to be communicating by email and video conferencing than uh, where the, the younger generation, uh, all, they only knew a world with internet. In fact, they, I at a workshop uh, recently, I asked the younger people there, I said, have you ever known a time when there wasn't a smartphone? And I said, no, there's always been a smartphone. <laughs> I said, wow. So it's, they're very uh, used to technology and maybe in some instances need to teach those of lesser skilled uh, how to use the devices, but I find that um, they are um, probably not as exposed to some of the the um, you know the actual application of some of the activities of strategic plan. Where somebody that's been in the business for twenty or thirty years has probably experienced successes and failures on on some of these topics, but they can bring those success in, and, and stories and those problems. To, to highlight for everyone what's happening. But you also have the younger generations that maybe can see through the bias that it becomes part of our thinking after we've been around for a long time. We've become kind of prejudiced against certain things, whereas the younger people, maybe they don't really have that prejudice. So that's sort of refreshing because they can charge ahead. In, in, the, in the professional services world, uh, there's a, a, a people that are responsible for being billable, right? The old utilization rate or billability goal. And so the more junior people are often, you know, 95% goal. And the more senior people are lower, you know, it could be 50, 40, 30, or even in some companies, there's, there's people uh, in the C-suite level who are 0% billable. So you have uh, people with different different things tugging at them, which does challenge their ability to stay focused. However, the conversation with at the beginning and and securing their buy-in was to know that they were gonna need to find the time to make this work. So We we need to find the time to make it work. And you asked earlier about, do they make adjustments over time? And they absolutely do. From the CEO, from working with a group, we take attendance, we know who's participating. The uh, group leader is aware of who's participating, who's not, who's following through, who's coming prepared. So at some point, it might be six months into it or a year into it, uh, there needs to be some conversations and some change out of the people who are involved uh, and yeah. some active recruiting of some new people involved. So there are some that think they'll be able to contribute, but for, for some reasons, we all, they all have, we all have personal reasons that interfere with our ability to contribute. Some, some people just, just have to drop off and, and others can pick up. It also, we usually have a person who's leading each, each, each strategic goal and its execution, and even the leadership of those groups often has to change out, you know, a year into it, you know, maybe one or two people. So it's a, it's a fluid um, experience, uh, one that the, the CEO in particular needs to stay on top of to make sure that, um, that momentum uh, is, is maintained.
0: But ultimately, I think that's a healthy dynamic because, you know, as long as the leadership, the CEO, and whoever is really responsible for the strategic plan—I mean, that is—that's succession planning. That is strategic planning because you have to be able to move forward if people change, if life circumstances come up, if professional circumstances come up. So it's almost like that's living the plan to be able to acknowledge that, hey, change is going to happen, but this is what's going to sustain us moving forward. And there will be people who I want to do this, but at the end of the day day, after six months, after one year, you know, it's a little bit of all talk and no action. So, you know, maybe it's the next in line needs to step up because they're more in tune with the organizational needs moving forward. So it can be a little bit of a Petri dish experiment, you know, that I found too, as long as the leader that, you know, you don't get frustrated, you just see it as it is. This is the opportunity. You know, what's in front of you, you know, sub team in charge of this aspect. Um, It's either getting done or it's not. Um, And after a couple of discussions with, you know, this needs to be a priority, if it's not well that tells that tells the the old the leaders of the organization that someone's not doing this like there, there's something missing so let's have to give someone else the opportunity so i mean i you know i i, I think you know in my experience is the strategic plan is great but the implementation is almost your succession planning that is who's really um into the the futures organization and making things happening and working in the gray and uh, doing their job and advancing the ball, so I think that's it, it is it, it, do, it can't stop there, you know. As far as the plan and execute it, that that's the kind of like the, the, the game begins in a way, in, in a way as as far as the the success of the organization. You know, we, Peter, you just mentioned I think one thing it's
2: very important uh, succession planning. It's not unusual for let's say a CEO uh, or or COO to be approaching retirement and that might be a driver their exit might be a driver between strategic planning so when we conduct strategic planning that way we don't make the strategic planning about that it's not about succession planning or exit necessarily Uh, although it could in that open and free discussion become one of the uh, points and one might think that leadership development programs might become a priority of the uh, of the strategic plan Uh, but What we uh, talk about and what we do see is that while the CEO might have an idea, uh, an opinion about who's the likely successor, um, the execution period is uh, where reality uh, reveals itself. We see those who are leaders, who can advance, who people do pay attention to, who will take on the more difficult tasks, uh, not just the ones that they already know about. Oh, I've done that 10 times before, so I'll do that how about this other one that's sort of beyond our current skills? We're gonna to have to spend time learning that. So so at, after uh, you know a couple years into executing strategy, it becomes quite clear who the successors are. And I know at that point, and I often have discussions with, with individuals about who they think the next successors are, and their answers are based on who was really shining during the execution phase. And so that adds a great deal of comfort to the CEO as well because it's, uh, it's unnerving sometimes for, a, for someone who's approaching retirement and owns a lot of stock to say, how am I going to exit? And uh, because I rarely is somebody exiting with just one cash payout, it's usually paid out over time, which means the company has to remain strong and viable for a while while they're receiving the payout. So they wanna make sure the company's left in good hands. Uh, that actually is another driver between uh, acquisitions. Uh, companies have sold themselves simply because the CEO Uh, hadn't been developing leaders, maybe missed an opportunity to use strategic planning and execution to develop people. And so they get nervous and they just sell and they take that check and that's it. So uh, that that ends up though leaving some people in the lurch, particularly if that wasn't clearly communicated years in advance, that that's the direction the company was going. But uh, it's it's, uh, interesting to watch how people at all levels can um, demonstrate their leadership skills through the execution phase.
0: Right. And almost have the peer support and the respect and the reverence of others through their performance. So it, it, they become the sort of the chosen group or the chosen ones that they they might not have fit the profile early on. But once you've started to execute the strategy, it becomes evident that this is truly the leader, not just the one that fit the profile before we did the process. Right, right. Um, so that's that's a pretty interesting, you know, set of scenario. Um, You know, as far as the strategic planning and the other aspect, too, is, you know, even if a leadership team is, you know, I don't know if if we want to merge with another organization, you know, that has the same values, but has better leverage into markets in the future. I mean, there's great reasons for M&A. It's not necessarily, you know, just because of I need to sell this place and I haven't, you know, advanced my my leadership team. Um, But it's interesting that through a comprehensive strategic planning or a very effective strategic planning, it actually whether we're we're interested in in succession planning to maintain our private ownership within our group or to be able to be considered for M&A, an effective strategic plan with next generation leaders in place and high potentials, you know, advancing the mission, you're more attractive. So you're going to get a better price, you know, if you're looking to be, you know, merge or acquire, you know, or you're going to set yourself up to be maintain, you know, your private employee ownership. And so strategic planning done well actually benefits no matter what the outcome is. Yes. It. So it's like we, we can't just, well, we don't need this strategic plan because we're going to sell. Well, you know, you're going to be looking at 50 cents on the dollar because, you know, <laughs> if you're not around and there's no other leaders, well, there's really less value here. So that's just something, you know, that, you know, is sometimes an eye opener to the leadership teams also. Right. And uh, I think um, the other thing, just to expand on the what
2: changes uh, question, Peter uh, year one, uh, one of the phenomena that we see time to time again is the sort of human nature to um, to start with the things in which are most comfortable and familiar. So whatever the whatever the goal is, we might uh, the teams will tend to want to start on what they already know, uh, without regarding or without really tr- appreciating uh, what how much that does or does not advance towards the goal. And um, uh, for instance, with a uh, strategic goal of cross selling or cross staffing, that's pretty common in our industry. Well, the the team runs out and I've seen this multiple times and they wanna create a list of every employee and every skill that they have, right? And they spend a fair amount of time on that right away. And I, sometimes at the beginning, I'll just let them do some of these things because they have to learn by experiencing it. So, and it's kind of frustrating for the CEO sometimes because they, they say, we should be doing more things faster. And I say, well, there's a learning. There's a startup phase here. We're, we're kind of feeling our way into the very beginning. So don't think that three months in, you know, all these things are going to be happening. So they will start on something like that. And then we asked the a question about, you know, did is, it, is that why we're not cross-staffing and cross-selling? Is it because we didn't have this list of who does what? And it always comes down to, well, no, that's not really what's preventing us from doing that. So, so okay, so what is? And so what is is harder because it's relationships and culture. It's bringing up things like trust. And, you know, how do you build trust? And, and that's not necessarily the skill set of a room full of people who are technically trained. Even if they're management, they probably are still technically trained. And that's sort of outside their area of expertise. I mean, the HR director might have known that and the marketing person might because they have business background. But it's really needing to help them come outside their comfort zone. And that's where, particularly in year two of execution, is where a lot of barriers are hit because the the staff is going outside their comfort zone and they need additional support. So even before the strategic plan is started, one needs to know that it's likely, either immediately or definitely in year two, you're gonna be bringing others from the outside to help people learn. Or maybe even outside to do additional analysis, or maybe do some things for you. Uh, for instance, developing a career path. Uh, one could have a committee struggle through that, or one could go out and get an HR professional to work with them to just do it for them. So it's really, it really depends on how their appetite for how quickly they want to advance. If you spend some money and bring in that HR professional who'll help you develop career paths, but you help you recruit and retain employees, or you can have your committee try to work it out themselves. People who are, none of them are experts on it. Maybe the HR person, maybe. Um, so they try to muddle their way through it. So this is where I say, you're too, just expect to need to help overcome barriers
0: by bringing in some additional expertise,
2: at least to teach people, if not to have some people help advance.
0: Right. And I think that's the best of both worlds because you are reducing that learning curve. You have expertise, but you have a team of people who are learning Um, leverage what's available on the outside and then customize it for your internal conditions. I mean, that, that I think is a valuable, you know, if speed there's, there's value in speed and execution. I mean, you know, what's the, what's the value finishing that strategic effort two years from now if four people have left the organization and two people didn't come. Well, if you got that done in six months, all of a sudden you have more engaged people and, and you know, you plus, you plus six. You know, what I mean, so uh, as far as people and, and all the disruption that happens when somebody leaves the organization. So I think that that's an absolute, you know, key, you know, to bring in those folks. Right.
2: And that's where the CEO is ultimately one that needs to understand that. And having uh, an outsider working with the teams to advance the uh, the, the uh, strategic plan through its execution uh, to help be also another pair of eyes on the inside to be able to spot where that's happening.
0: And I think for the CEO to be, or whoever's in charge, to be really astute um, and to really, you brought it up, you know, barriers. You know, one of the barriers, um, and it gets into these issues, people don't necessarily want to talk about, you know, who's trusted, who's not. We're not going to bring up that conversation. This is someone's identity, and that's very, you know... it's compensation systems it's how we incentivize what people do like i'm going to be incentivized by what my supervisor incentivizes i'm going to be incentivized by how i get my bonus i mean it's just it's human nature right. so if we want coaching and mentoring and training and bringing the next generation to sales calls and we want all that stuff if the incentive system is no get it done get it fast don't You know, teach somebody on the job. I mean, there's going to be things that happen. And when it hits, people's, you know, my incentive is going to change. I'm good and I for 10 years I've been doing it this way and my bonuses look like this and now, you know, coaching and mentoring, whatever it is, bring that next generation and share the credit. We, You know, we're not going to be a geographic system. We're going to be a practice group or we're going to share credit on sale. Like all of that stuff, which is going to engage and encourage and bring in more people to help grow the business, people are going to be threatened by it. And I think sometimes our incentive compensation systems, and not just financial, but it's rewards, it's recognition, it's who gets promoted and why they get promoted and what's valued right. today. If it's, you know, hey, we'll put up with whatever because they keep closing business. You know, there, there, there are law firms out there, there. There are organizations that have, you know, certain um, expectations for etiquette and attitude. And they're going to be enforced. I mean, and so because they wanted to drive some of the culture. So that's another angle, you know, working with how not only do we want to grow the business, we want to establish the culture that will perpetuate this business and bring more people in. But it is hitting those barriers. And I think those aren't going to be brought up necessarily. I mean, you, you can anticipate them. Nine times, nine out of 10 firms like this is an issue. So let's think about it now, but how you actually, you know, the rubber hits the road with your firm and the, the people you have bringing, we've got to figure that thing out over time, but it is going to be an issue. So I think that receptive to the, because this barrier has come out, here's another sub project that has come out of this. But as soon as we get that fixed, even if two people's feathers are ruffled, one of those people leave, but ten. 12 people are engaged and an office can flourish. Now as a leader, we have to be able to assess that information and make the best decision. But I think that type of reality hits when we're executing the plan. But in all honesty, it's probably for the better and it's probably things that we knew about, but now we have reasons to actually put the trigger on them.
2: Yeah. And you, you just touched on a number of subjects and topics Peter that uh, are important to the successful execution. We talked about influencers earlier as individuals who are participating in the plan and its implementation. But then there's influencing. And influencing change is very hard and not something that's intuitive. So very smart people, engineers, scientists, architect, very smart people, not necessarily trained on how to influence change. And you mentioned the compensation system and you also mentioned consequences of somebody who's not, not a team player or who are really uh, being a negative player. Um, uh, one of the, in, in the book, I talked about several influence methods that are important to be aware of and to stay tuned into. And one of them is environment. Uh, in, everyone operates in a certain environment, uh, like physical environment, like their desk, you know? And then expectations of coming to work. Do you have flex hours or not? Do you have a dress code? What do you do during lunch? Um, Are you able to have lunch or is that only are you going to have a brown bag scheduled three out of five days that you're required to go to, therefore you don't have a lunch? Uh, How are you recognized? Is it based on sales? Is it based on teamwork? Is it based on your peers giving you a thumbs up or your peers even asked? Uh, People who are not on board with the program, are there consequences? Will the CEO hold them accountable? So there's all these different um, things. Uh, One of the things I talk about is strength and numbers. That's actually uh, one of the most important uh, elements of influencing change is to seek, uh, seek support in numbers. Uh, if you have a lot of people on board with something that tends to get those who are on the outside looking in on board. Uh, and there's a, there's a video I use in some of my presentations, it's off of a TED talk about showing how if one or two or people are doing something that everybody else sees as cool, so therefore, they need to be seen as an influencer, someone that's credible, and they're doing something that people say, wow, that's pretty neat. They'll, other people will start to join, even if it's something that, that seems crazy. Uh, if, if, if two or three people can join, then maybe a few more. At some point, when you get enough people involved with advancing that, that activity, those who are not involved will feel left out
0: right and it's the, and, it's
2: the, the that, and they will then join like they were maybe not buying it but they'll jump in and this is in strategy execution it is a very important and, and tool to to know and
0: know how to use
2: and to employ
0: Yeah, I've seen that video, and it is—it's the (laughs) second one and the third one that start to create the movement. And you know, it's—it's the you're you're a lone nut until the second and the third person come in, and then at the end you're a genius. Like you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, I think
2: yeah. For the audience listening, uh, Ted Simmer's 2010 TED talk, um, and it's called The Dancing Man. You can just Google it and find that. And if you watch that, now you know where I got the title of my book. Right. Lead a movement. <laughs> Lead a movement. Lead a movement is the name of my book, and now you know exactly where it came from.
0: <laughs> so you, you had a pretty stark stat. And, and anything other than what we've talked about that you see, the very small percentage of firms um, who do strategic planning are able to successfully execute them, uh, very small percentage. So w- w- are there any other attributes that we haven't spoken about? today that you think are indicative of a firm that will see this thing through or any major red flags you see of, you know, seven times out of 10, this is what throws a company off. And this is why we don't execute the strategy. Yeah,
2: we have covered a lot of them. Uh, one
0: uh, that touches
2: on some of the things we've talked about is just ego. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about ego. And I declare that there is no such thing as a good ego. Like someone with a little bit of ego, that's a little bit of bad. Little bad because our ego actually prevents us from being open-minded, from listening to other people. It changes our behavior because we start we start doing things simply because we perceive how we're going we perceive that we're going to be looked uh, favorably or disfavorably or silly in the case of the dancing man video. So the uh, we we that's really based on our ego, which is a reflection of our self-confidence and self-worth. So. In advance of the strategic planning, it's a good topic to explore with everybody involved, particularly the management team, about whether they're able to set that aside. Along those lines during the execution, uh, those with very high ego tend to be controlling and want to be involved with every aspect of the execution. And I warn the CEOs, I'd say, if you do that, you will likely have a group of people that will vote you out they will want to forbid you from coming to the meetings. And most CEOs, I think, respect that, but not all. <laughs> but they're just insisting to be involved, uh, and it intimidates the outcome, and, and it's very limiting. So they have to really get control of that ego and, and to believe that by letting go, by delegating, let people um, speak their minds uh, without fear of uh, being criticized or ridiculed, uh, is important, and it takes takes someone to be able to set their ego aside. And right. the firms, I think, that can do that, and the individuals who I know have been successful at, at the head of their company are usually able to handle and, and deal with their own personal ego.
0: Well, I think it gets into the ego is the opposite of, in, in a lot of ways, onto the subsection of the opposite, of humility which is such a prized leadership attribute today and something that people are attracted to. I mean, if you have humility and high levels of confidence, that's the ultimate. But you don't need the ego involved. And I think, you know, what you said about, you know, if, if you do find yourself wanting to be involved with every detail, I've seen, you know, people want to vote you out. I've seen the other side where people just disengage, whatever you want. Uh, this it, yes. it, it, it is going to happen anyway, and I would rather be three different places than here if it has to be because I'm incentivized to do this, or it's just going to be your way in the end and just tell us what you want, and we'll just move forward. With it. Yeah. You
2: know, that's so, a good point. People will disengage, and you have somebody maybe is sort of leading the team that's working on a particular a goal or tactic, and if, if somebody external, uh, some corporate board member or CEO, insists on – controlling the conversation in that meeting that person will likely resign from that position I mean what do you do you're just taking the wind out of their sails you're not empowering them you're not allowing them to grow and develop on their on themselves you're you're teaching them how to just try to anticipate what you as the leader is going to think or say and that's not very healthy so that's that's a that's a real important barrier and a reason why plans uh, eventually um, fail you know they stall out and Dissolve and people will forget about them.
0: Right. Well, it's the ultimate level. You know, mass flows, you know, it's not self actualization of a leader that's the ultimate stage. It's transcendence. It's you're there's something bigger than you. It's this organization, and, you know, you're sort of loving your organization as much or more than yourself and the people involved because you're this is something that's going to grow and it's bigger than just sell a few self-actualized leaders if they're even at that level i mean there is that sort of that next level which is the the sort of you're part of something bigger and you're making that bigger you know move forward so is there any i guess any other tidbits from your book that just you know you think we should bring out before we, we close the uh the discussion today
2: I think what's important is to understand that the sense of urgency behind strategic planning and, and doing it right. Um, it is more important to set the ego aside, set, uh, set aside the do it yourself idea um, no, now more than ever. And the reason is that right now, or less over those last 10 years, this industry, is experiencing competition from a place that we never experienced it before. Now, the example where we're, where we're, where we're familiar with uh, is design build, where construction companies are moving into the engineering and architecture space, for instance. They're hiring their own engineering team, their own architectural team, and they were being the one-stop solution for a client. That has taken hold uh, the uh, that that approach is exploding, and in some states in this country, it is now the main way services are delivered. So that represents competition to a pure engineering or architectural firm. Now what we see right now, we see firms like IBM, for instance, and Google moving actively into our space. And those they have large r and d departments. They have all of Wall Street to finance their research. And engineering firms classically have little to no R&D budget. And we invest very little in training. Uh, Engineering firms and architectural firms compared to all industries in general spend half as much on educating our staff as others. And if you were to look at some of those high tech and fast growing industries, we're probably one fifth or one sixth of what they do. So what it means is as an industry for us to survive, knowing that these, this competition from new competitors is here and it's gonna be here within, if you were to start your strategic plan right now in a five-year horizon, they're gonna be here in that horizon. So it's important to be more open-minded than ever to make sure that when you do your strategic planning, you're really looking outside of your industry at your, at your competitors. Uh, Strategic planning also always includes a list, uh, an examination of our our competitors, but now we have some new competitors. And the firms that don't do this, I think, are going to be um, uh, really hurt. Uh, It's going to be, they're becoming, going to be part of a small group of firms that didn't change, that didn't evolve, that didn't uh, embrace the new ways of delivering our services to our clients.
0: Right. Well, and it gets into, you know, strategically, how do we start selling our value, not just our time because of, you know, the IBMs and the Googles are going to come in and they're going to make artificial intelligence a reality in some basic decision making. And in some instances, it can be we can commoditize things. That um, jobs that we used to get paid for now are just very easily done with an app, and the and the owner does them, the client does them, or there are things that you know that used to be fifty thousand dollars worth of work now it's five, and so it's a little bit of a race, a commodity race. Um, we have to fight against that and be able to sell value, but at the same time, if we're able to you know scale our business based on technology and sell the value it's actually very profitable from a business perspective Um, and so that I think from a strategy looking at that but it's it's interesting what you say about you know the the, some of the biggest fears that you know I hear is you know what are the contractors doing are we going to be you know how how do we how do we move forward with that and sometimes it could be legislation you know um, but you know sometimes it's going to be we're just going to have to be flexible we're gonna have to look at using gig economy workers and you know how do we provide Provide more value that way. But it's interesting you bring up the IBMs and the Googles because I was listening um, not too long ago um, of a podcast that is really based in Silicon Valley. Um, And they just, it wasn't a side part of the conversation, but they were talking about uh, basically the the engineering, the architectural, the um, type of world, the accounting world and the law world, where some of these big tech companies are saying, you know what? The, they're so far behind. That's their growth. They're moving into our our world with some of their technology solutions. So I think it's it's being, and we're not going to know exactly, we have to bring it to the forefront with some strategic planning, but I think it's as time happens, it's going to evolve. And that's, you know, it gets into, I was, I was on a a podcast and they were talking about, you know, is there still a technical role for engineers? And, you know, my response was absolutely. You don't have to be a manager. You have to develop more people skills. And I think everyone in an organization is going to benefit from people skills, but I think the uh, technical folks are going to have to be as much technologists and understand how to use and leverage technology. But again, that's all part of talking about the future and strategic planning. And I think we're still going to be selling to people and you will be people selling to people. (laughs)
2: You're still going to be people. (laughs) <laughs> well, one of the things that, for instance, the, the those um, doing the crystal balling of our future, which isn't very far away, I believe, is, for instance, the typical engineering firm is going to, while we're used to having um, sub-consultants or teams on some larger projects that might be different disciplines like geotech, architectural, electrical, and so on, um, now we're going to be employing software people. We'll have divisions within engineering firms that'll be software-focused. That'll be robotics-focused, artificial intelligence-focused, and big data management-focused. It's, it's something that most firms um, aren't involved with at all. And a few of the thought leader companies I know have divisions and even spun off technology units in an attempt to move into that space. But uh, absolutely, the IBMs and Google have a strategic plan on how to enter our, our space, and they are executing it right now.
0: Yeah, and think about, I mean, already firms, you know, chief technology officer, chief information officer are critical roles. I mean, look at, you know, not just photos from construction. I mean, that was the first sort of, how? what are we going to do with all these digital photos that crash in our system? Yeah, it's, it's well beyond that because this is drones oh, and lidar, yeah. and, you know, probably the biggest headache for a lot of IT departments is where am I getting all this storage and data and you know, you got to get into security, and, like, the, there's so much, I think, um, and it doesn't have to be scary, but it has to be thought of and planned out with okay. the right type of expertise. And this the strategic planning is the venue to to do that and to be able to continue and have okay. that as a priority. Well, okay. This has been a great discussion. It has been. I can just keep talking to you about this and I'm sure the (laughs) leaders can, but we've got to be able to wrap up, Um, you know, any other, just final, final thoughts and how people. No, I think we've covered
2: a lot, Peter. And thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Yeah. How can people reach out to you?
2: Well, certainly on my website, fostergrowth.biz or D R E E D at fostergrowth.biz. Might be the easiest. Well, excellent. And I'm on LinkedIn too. Connect with me on LinkedIn.
0: Yeah. And, you know, with such a, a a small community um, in all intents and purposes um, and its community, the AEC space, they're just good people. I mean, I say it time and time again, it's good people. It's a good people in this industry. And, you know, we're focused on improving the environment you know improving infrastructure making people's lives better and so we all pretty much chose well or you know we're directly doing it or we're supporting people who are doing it so um you you, you're one of the good people um and glad that you're with this and we had this discussion and uh look forward to to seeing you pretty soon in a couple of
1: weeks Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.